For the New York State AFL-CIO, I'm Darcy Wells, and this is Union Strong. On this podcast, musicians are union members, too. We have a member of Local 802 with us today. He wrote our theme music, in fact, that you hear at the beginning and close of every show. He's a singer, musician, multi-instrumentationalist, composer, and arranger who formed his own band at age 13. He was the first voice of the Muppets. Uh, He has played keyboards and toured with Grace Slick, Pat Benatar, Dusty Springfield, Engelbert Humperdinck, Chuck Berry, Stevie Wonder, and Bruce Springsteen among others. He's scored films for director Abel Ferrara that includes The Bad Lieutenant, King of New York, Ms. 45, and Body Snatchers, to name a few. He has scored full sessions of TV shows, including War of the Worlds, Digging for the Truth for History Channel, for the Emmy Award-winning docuseries for NBC Time Life titled Lost Civilizations, and so much more. Our guest today, the one and only Joe D'Elia. Joe, welcome to the program. Hi, Darcy. Hi, Kevin. Uh, good to be out here. Yeah, we, we drove in from uh, from Tapan here to Albany, and it's wonderful to be here. Well, it's so nice to have you here in person, and we've spoken over the phone uh, several times. But first, I do want to thank you in person for our theme music. It was important to our president, Mario Salento, to have a union member write our theme music. Um, and I don't know that people realize that musicians are also union members. So if you can just talk to me for a second about the benefits of being a musician and also belonging to a union. You know, I think, you know, of course, there are any number of, uh, of benefits, you know, that go from, you know, in the old days, it was uh, health insurance was very, very much available through the union. I belong to uh, 291 in Newburgh. Mm-hmm. Back then, as a as a kid, I belonged I belonged to the local upstate, and you could get Blue Cross Blue Shield for pennies, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think the union helped with that. I think now it's, you know, it's more of a, a payout, of course. Uh, but I think one of the the practical things are things like uh, reuse payments are are huge. So if you play on a, a, a record day, a recording session, a film score. As these things are being reused, mm-hmm. the contracts are, are filed with the local and they come back out and the reuses get paid basically in perpetuity. And I think that's huge for all musicians. You know, So whenever a, a contract can go in on anything, it, sh- it should because we're going to get that residual. We're going to get that royalty. So that's one big benefit, I would, I would say. Okay. Um, now, when I reached out to you in February of this year, I gave you maybe uh, two sentences of uh, what kind of music that we were looking for, and you cranked out some samples. I, I just love that. I loved it right away. It was great. So here's my question to you. I mean, with this, how do you, I, I really did just give you a couple sentences and you're sitting there, what, in front of the keyboard and how does that work? You know, I think you try to, uh, you know, you try to somehow extract the the essence of what you were talking about. You know, it's word. you know, you're putting it into words. I'm trying to put it into sound and music, but it, it's a number of things. You know, it's, the, of course, the tempo, the feel and the vibe you know, not the notes, mm-hmm. you know, because they have to, 
be your own. But, mm -hmm. I, you know, I think you did a, a very kind of pointed direction on it, which is important. And I, I think with the work that I do, which is commissioned composition, I've been mm -hmm. doing that for so long, you have to try to zero in on on what that meaning is mm -hmm. and what that vibe is. And sometimes you get it, sometimes you don't. The The project we did for you was great. You know, we did a whole number of different cues based on the input that you gave. And I thought that this probably was the right feeling. I think you said edgy mm -hmm. and, but not too dark. Right, <laughs> right. We want to but turn I, people off every time they hear yeah, it. There no, we that's go with exactly. this We didn't show. want to go like full, you know, right. uh, heavy metal on it, but the same seemed right. And we love it. We have other ones that we use, you know, depending on tempo, what we yes. need and, at the time. And we had so. another terrific uh, union guy, another 802 guy, Johnny Blood. Uh, Johnny Leach, his real name is, and he's one of the, uh, he is really the top guitarist in East Hampton who just worked wonders with his, you know, his contribution. Mm -hmm. You give him the music yeah. and, uh, and... Right, exactly. Awesome. So you've worked uh, closely with uh, the highly acclaimed filmmaker Abel Ferrara. Yes. So I wanted to talk to um, you a little bit about those films, um, including one, is it Ghoulies Dance? Yes, uh, Ghoulies Dance was from The Funeral, which starred Chris Walken and Annabella Sciarra. And I threw this in because it's such a wacky piece of piece of music. It is. This is, it's great. Let's listen for a second. Now, was this also in, was this in Ms. 45? No. No, it was no, the funeral. And, okay. and as I listened to the sisters, all great union uh, guys, Jimmy and Jerry Vivino played on it, Mark Pender, David Keyes played bass on it, all 802 lifers, you know, so, you know, we, we had a good union band and it was a good chart and, and performed by a guy named Paul Hip, who starred as Buddy Holly on Broadway and is a wonderful musician and actor. And he did this crazy dance in the film <laughs> to this. Um, you know, I have to say, uh, we're talking about film, which uh, it's visual, um, and we're here, obviously, uh, people are hearing what we're saying, but when I look at you, you must have been told before that you look like Mick Jagger, I, right? Yes. Uh, I'm going to give I, everyone no. a visual if you haven't seen what Joe <laughs> no, D'Elia looks the, like. No, I have heard this. I've heard it every day Do you ever get stopped, for, yeah. even people? Yes, we, you know, we have stopped traffic and, <laughs> and, awesome. and had people running up, giving me things and, and fighting me to this stuff until You're I saying, find Joe, I'm, I'm Joe. not that guy. You know, That's funny. I'm a different you person. You really do look yeah. like him. Um, so what about your relationship with Abel uh, Ferrara? I mean, what a filmmaker. How did that happen? You know, it, he was, uh, you know, we uh, hail from Rockland County, you know, born in New York City, born in Brooklyn, and then ended up in the suburbs. And mm -hmm. he he grew up in Peekskill, and he passed through Rockland for a while. And he went to school, I think, at RCC for a couple of years and was in Nyack and was a friend of my old older brother, Frank, who's also a filmmaker. And they, that put it together. And mm -hmm. at, that, at that point, Abel was... He was starting to make features. I was, you know, I was kind of a more of a button-down guy than these guys, and I was playing on disco records, mm -hmm. on union, real union dates, because mm -hmm. it was the 70s, everything was 
union contract in those yeah. days. And I was playing those dates as a studio musician, which is what I really wanted to be. So working as a composer was not really in the... Not part the, of the plan? No, it wasn't really so much part of the plan. I wanted to be an arranger and mm-hmm. a piano player. And then I met Abel, and as life has a, took took a turn, and it's been really a 40-year uh, ongoing, you know, collaboration and friendship and... Yeah, you've done quite and, a bit with him. a lot together. Um, what you, another thing that you wrote um, for Abel was his 1990s uh, crime thriller, King of New York. Right. Um, stars some heavy hitters, Christopher Walken, Lawrence Fishburne, Wesley yep. Snipes, Victor, Victor Argo. Yes. I wonder when when we hear this. Now, do you get a script first to give you kind you know, of this vision? Or? I think on this, I had the opening sequence of the film, and we tried a, a few different things. You know, I went. I, I originally had gone with a uh, a more jazz uh, style thing, a mm-hmm. trumpet as, as principal instrument, and then uh, Nick St. John, who was the screenwriter, uh, suggested uh, a piece of the second movement of Vivaldi's. Um, Four Seasons, the autumn sequence. So those notes that we're hearing were sort of our adaptation of that, and then it morphs into my own original stuff. But mm-hmm. the opening no- notes are actually Vivaldi done mm-hmm. in our style, in our arrangement, and then it goes into into my theme after that. But it's a wonderful sequence in the film. So it's what a, is that like for you when you sit there at the, and watch the film and this music... You know, comes on. I mean, the music it, makes it right. It sets yeah, the mood. You know, it's, it's it's the best thing. You know, and I think I came in early because I'm a keyboard player, mm-hmm. and I had. You know, you're asking about getting together with Abel. This would, I think, I first worked with him in the late '70s, mm-hmm. and I already had a, you know, a good keyboard rig, a couple of synthesizers, which were relatively new, and some recording equipment, which not everyone in those days had at all. So that was the first thing was that I had the gear to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you so, know, maybe hey, I didn't have the, the gear too. Let's go. Yeah, I might not have had the ability or the, well, the talent or the experience for sure, but I had the the axes, you know, I had the gear, right? Um, and it was in the early days of what, you know, the agents of California now call principally electronic, which became a mode, you know, when Jan Hammer started doing Miami Vice and all, all of this stuff, those were electronic uh, scores. Uh, and I think I got in kind of on the ground floor of that. So mm-hmm. because I was a keyboard player and I had the instruments and I was able to record. So most of the work that I've done has not been orchestral per se. The one from the funeral is more orchestral and there have mm-hmm. been some that have been full or- orchestra, but most of it is say 80% electronic and then maybe 10% musicians will come in and supplement and enhance and okay. and flesh it. Flesh well, I was, it out. I was wondering from that. So from writing, composing to recording to mastering, how has all that general process changed over the years? I think I think what happened was you had to I think in order to survive you had to start wearing a lot of hats which you 
you know as a producer, mm-hmm. you're a writer, a producer, a personality. You know, it's the same thing on, on, on our end where I can remember in the old days of recording, sitting in, in a recording studio and watching an engineer splicing a, a reel-to-reel tape, mm-hmm. and they would rock the heads. You know, I remember doing tape. that in radio. You, you actually took radio, a piece of right? razor blade, a razor, sure, and of, sliced. Of course, you know, and they would they would rock the mm-hmm. tape back and forth over the heads, and then they would just hear that one sound. And how the heck do they identify that? But they could backwards and forwards. Mm-hmm. They would rock it back and forth, mark it with with grease paint or mm-hmm. whatever you call it, the grease yep. pencil, and then cut, cut it, it. And splice it. If you and, cut it wrong. And if you cut it wrong. <laughs> and, good. and I would look at that and say, how on earth do they do it? And then a few years later, I was like doing it in my sleep. Mm-hmm. I could cut like a 16th note out of a measure of music and put it together and it would sound pretty good. So you learn to wear a lot of hats. And now you're know. doing that. Now you can do that on the computer. Now you can do it very easily on the computer. And I I don't think that I was ever... Kevin's over here listening, going, I don't know how easy it is. I'm just learning this stuff. No, no, of course. (laughs) And I I think we do it electronically now. We just put the graph up and we can see where it is. But um, I think there's still the things that you do the best. You know, I'm a piano player by trade. I think that's probably what I do best. But I can engineer my stuff because I have to, you Mm -hmm. know. Well, I wanted to talk about another um, film that you were involved in with Abel, um, the theme from Body Snatchers. Yes. Now, that's from back in 1993. 93. But I could see you watching you. It takes you right back. It does. And that was Warner Brothers. So, you know, Abel was always known as essentially an independent Mm -hmm. filmmaker. And Body Snatchers kind of was a bit of a peak for us because Warner Brothers had come up with what was easily 10 times the budget that we were used to mm-hmm. having for a film. So it was a it was a a big film and a and a bigger score. A lot of pressure, right? A, an enormous amount of pressure. And they wouldn't sign me on. I remember that uh there was this whole confirmation process. Mm-hmm. And they were like, who is this guy? And they were like, he's done all these films for Abel and he's you know, he's a working composer. He's mm-hmm. got credits. I had enough credibility, I think, to be hired. But it was a whole thing getting confirmed by by Warner Brothers, and they put me on sort of a a short leash. You know, oh, yeah. they they called it a uh, I think a step deal or something. So it was like, okay, we'll give you this much money now, and we'll sign you on for like a month mm-hmm. or two we'll months. See how, we'll see how it out, right? Yeah, we'll see how it goes, and then that, uh, and it was stage after stage, and it, it went through. But it was. Uh, a lot of pre- pressure, and the score I think was really—it's intense. Was, it's intense and or more orchestral, you know. Yeah. Which I w- had hoped that it would have led to doing more, you know, full or- orchestra scores, which mm-hmm. it didn't so much. But at least the the work that I was used to doing con- continued. Right. So, what about some of your songs now? Um, 
You were the co-founder and musical director for six years of the Buster Poindexter Act. I I like to think of myself as the co-founder. I mean, we put it together in my house in in Japan. That was the the actual origin of it. It was named there. The first set was put together there. And then we went out to Tramps and started doing the, the gigs. And then it evolved into a national act after that, which is not surprising because David was very well known mm-hmm. and he knew how to grow a band and grow a, grow an act and it grew into hot, hot, hot and everybody... Yeah, who doesn't right? know this who song? Who doesn't know this one, right? Yeah, I mean... Even young Kevin here. No, you've got to... You've you got, could, you, weddings. Don't they play this at weddings? <laughs> they so do. It's one of those quick you've, drag you've out... You've got to love it's David Johansson. And this is a, a great case in point, union-wise, because there were two guys. The Uptown Horns were the horn section. They were actually co... We took a co-arranging credit on the record. Mm-hmm. And Arno Hecht and Chris Pincio were the leaders, and they're 802 guys. Arno insisted, this stuff has got to go union. Mm-hmm. I remember Arno was like, these are union dates. And he knew that the repayments on, on these sessions were going to be something, mm-hmm. right? And I tell you, Darcy, to this day, the royalties still roll in pretty well Good. from Hot, Hot, Hot. When the song came out, it was used on every advertising campaign for like for five years. I mean, it just you could not turn around without hearing this version of mm-hmm. Hot, Hot, Hot. And then one film score after the other, after the other used it. It was just a commercial song. And then, of course, he could have walked into a wedding without right. a wedding band. You know, w- wedding musicians would come up and say, well, what are the what is that word that he's singing? You know, <laughs> and I would say, well, it's, you know. That's great. And I would know. I would know well, then, that. so you look at it, that's an investment in your future when you're talking about that time, wanting to be union-made, you know, music, the, the union musicians. Yes, and of they, course. That was a vision on their part to see that and, and to still get the royalties and, today. Right, and we want more and more of it. Mm-hmm. We, want the, we want the union to be as involved as, as possible on every, on every gig and every session and... Well, what would you say to up-and-coming musicians today? Um, you know, because it's it, they gotta they gotta be able to uh, make some money, right. and um, ideally, if they can be a union member, that's great. That's where they're gonna make right. the money. Um, would you encourage them to get involved right away, even if maybe they're you know you want every gig to be union, but if it isn't, should they still be a union member? I think that yeah, I think that someone who's planning to, of course, have a full-time career in music has got to be a a union member. And I think that it's only, the only full-time work as Mm -hmm. a musician, let's put it this this way, is union work. I think, if that Mm -hmm. makes makes any sense to you. Mm -hmm. I think the, the venues that are pure union are the symphonic spaces, Carnegie Hall, Lincoln Center, Mm -hmm. Broadway, of course, television, Mm Network yeah, television, right. some some cable, and the big film scores. Everything that falls under that, independent, local gigs, mm-hmm. whatever, spotty at mm-hmm. best. So, but those are the ones; those are the jobs that are often being filled by people who are not full time. Mm-hmm. 
So if you're a full-time musician, you know, any full-time musician that you know. You've got to be in a union. Is a, a union member. Unless they're in some huge metal band, you know, that <laughs> they're just making millions of dollars. And right. who cares is, about them? Yeah. They're, they're, they're probably union contracts on those gigs right. as well. Right. People doing the work behind the scenes of things, for yes, sure. Yes, of, of course, right. And the musicians are very very often union guys. They're not mm-hmm. working for scale, of course. We know that. Right. But uh, I think it has something to do with full-time work. The guys that I know who are ba- really making a living as musicians are all They recognize union, that. They're, they're all in. union members. That's for sure. Um, talk to me about um, Chicken Shack. Oh, Chicken Shack, right. That was... Uh, I did... A, a project with Max Weinberg from Springsteen's band, who we go way back with, and he had he had a custom label, and he signed what was at the time my band, Killer Joe, and he said you got to play Amos Milburn. I don't know how you don't tap your foot around. And no, you you can see that, that yeah that there's a, a a leaning towards you know boogie woogie and mm-hmm. blues and stuff. It, but as it's a chicken shack boogie, right? Yeah, it's it? a chicken shack boogie. At, but stylistically, that's sort of where mm-hmm. I I go. You know, it's where I live somehow. It's fun. <laughs> it's it is fun, fun music. Yes. Um, so what do you, what do you, we talked a little bit about the new skills that you had to learn along the way. So you know how to play, you know how to write, you compose, but did you have to learn different, um, instruments along the way to help your career or, um, a little bit here and there, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, some guitar, but I I don't consider myself a guitarist. I, at one point at maybe age 20 or 22, I took kind of a, a different path and started studying bass. Mm-hmm. So I was studying bass, bass viol, and mm-hmm. I be, for about two years became a, a bass player. Mm-hmm. This was after having played piano for a number of years before that. I was maybe 22, so I'd been playing for playing piano for 10 years, and that was my first instrument and the one that I could play. And what started happening was I started getting calls on bass, and at a certain point, I realized I, I didn't really want to be a bass player because I was being identified as a bass player and being mm-hmm. called as a bass player. And I made the decision at that point, maybe two or three years into it, to just get rid of the sell the instruments. And you had to actually get it out of the house. Yeah, huh? I, I did. And just now it. occasionally I'll pick up a bass because I think you get typecast on whatever, mm-hmm. whatever the first thing that, that you become known for, That you right? become known for. Yeah, it's going to stick and to I you. And I started come, coming in as a bass player, and I was like, I'm really a piano player. Right. Know? And I stuck with that, and that's the main instrument. But I could play a little, a little bit of drums and a little bit of guitar, but very little. And I'm always curious, too, like what comes first if you're going to write music from scratch, from the start? You're going to write a song now. Right. Are you writing, do you have the lyrics, or do you write the music? I think that's, uh, the, the whole process question is really it's really it's a great. chicken before the egg Yeah, question? no, and I think that for, for different writers, it's different things. I think for myself, it can be any number of, of ways, you know. It, you, you may just have... So it can uh, vary one time, it could be the absolutely. music. Absolutely. Yeah, sometimes you're sitting at the piano and you're banging something out, and 
it turns into a song. Sometimes you just, uh, you, you know, lyrics, you know, is Can not, inspire the music. Yeah, I was not uh, trained to be a lyricist or a, a poet. A lot of the stuff became, you know, necessity being the mother of invention. You know, mm -hmm. when a lyric, it was like the engineering, you know, a lyric needed to be written. So there were like a thousand really bad ones that were written over the years. And then you started figuring out that if you go this direction, you have a good concept to start or you have a good title. And then you start learning how to couple things and rhyme things and end phrases with certain words that will be good rhyming words. Mm -hmm. Which took a long time to okay. to learn that. No, that, that makes you sense, though. <laughs> that you can't rhyme everything with, right. with everything. You find, so you start figuring out how to write and then it coalesces in the, the the process but that's on the lyric end you know on the music end it could go it could go either way mm -hmm. it could start on the piano or the guitar where you're banging it out or it could start with the lyric or it can go both ways you know i'd like um, to hear a couple other samples that you gave us uh, right. including under the montauk right. moon. and under the montauk moon i yeah. think was uh you know because we as we talked about before we have this uh we have a place in montauk mm -hmm. we have a nice little pad by the the sea right right in the town of montauk and we started <clears throat> you can let it run up they boarded up the storefront and turned out all the lights so i drove right past old shadwall last call Go back to it? Yeah, I wanted to hear the chorus. Let's hear the chorus. Tonight, under the Montauk moon, the surfers down at East Deck are waiting for a swell. Harley's revving East on 27 like there. So, you know, as this came out, mm -hmm. and it's all kind of regional and local, but there are wonderful uh, radio stations. There's an NPR station called PPB out there, mm -hmm. and there's one called LNG, which is kind of the oldie stations. And they picked up on, on the song because it was so thematic to the region and to the area. And when I go out and, and play in Montauk, the audience knows all the words to this long narrative mm -hmm. song. You know, they and, love it. and it's so nice yeah you know, that's really that's probably cool got to be a really cool thing it about really is. there's not many jobs you can have that when you're right. done people stand up and applaud and whistle no and i <laughs> and tell you what a great job you've done no you and, and you know darcy for me because i've been behind the scenes for so long you know because I, I think as i started playing out a lot more in the last say 10 years after having been in the studio for all these years people are where were you you know what where, who are you you know what because I think a composer and a, a studio musician tend to be behind-the-scenes yeah. people. Right. And I was very much, even though I'm kind of a performer at heart, mm -hmm. right? I started coming out and, do it, and doing this and started playing these gigs, and it's been gratifying and fun, you know. So are there um, projects in the works that you can tell us about that yes. you have coming up? There are. There, there are so many things. You know, Abel and I have been very active he's been very active so it's been one film after the other since 2016 and the first was 
called Alive in France, which was a documentary of us performing around France. That premiered at Cannes two years ago. Mm-hmm. And my wife, PJ, is, is in the film, and I'm featured in Abel and Paul Hip. And for some reason, they the French press loved this film, and the people at the Cannes Film Festival loved it, and we had this whole red carpet deal. It was nice. crazy. It was crazy. So that was the first. And then there was... Uh, Piazza Vittorio, which was about immigration in this one particular section of Rome that was two years ago, and that premiered at the New York Film Festival. Mm -hmm. Then after that, now the one that's opening at Tribeca next week is called The Projectionist, which has to do, it's another documentary which has to do with the, uh, the emergence of of the film business in the 70s mm-hmm. in Times Square and in New York City, which both Abel, you know, I mean, Abel certainly had his roots in that scene. And then right on the heels of that was Tommaso, which stars Willem Dafoe, which we completed about two months ago. That's the one that premieres next week at okay. Tribeca. And then... Let me get this straight. And Siberia is... You need PJ for this part, I, I know, like. Yeah, and then <laughs> Siberia is the one that we're in the midst of working, and that's another okay. Willem Dafoe starring feature, and that's a bigger one, which was shot in the Alps in Mexico, and it's a location film. It's going to be a wonderful film. So it's been... Oh, and Tommaso is, is premiering at Cannes in May. We're still waiting for the date, but it's probably something like May... 20th ish, wow. something like that. So it's been. It's great. It's been activity. One, mm-hmm. one of the things that's coming up next week is uh, MoMA is doing a basically a month long retrospective of Abel's films, most of which I did scores to. So it's an honor. Yeah, to, I guess if you can just call him Abel, you've, yeah, yeah, you've got a pretty good relationship. No, that's what, but, you know, <laughs> a 30 days straight of events. Screenings, Q and A's, symposiums. The museum—it's such an honor, you know. Mm-hmm. For him, it is, and for me as well. And May first is his opening gala, which is going to be this whole big New York City event, and I'm going to perform at it. And it's going to be the whole thing. So it, it's That's exciting. It is really exciting. It's turned into an exciting time, you know. It's no, yeah. There's no, you know, going quietly into the night here. No, no retirement <laughs> in your future, that's for sure. No, I mean, and but I think as uh, as freelance, you know, and getting back to, to union and pension, yes, you, you know, this is, is important stuff, you know, mm-hmm. especially for a musician. You know, the guys who've been, you know, on Broadway and, and been sitting in a pit or been, you know, in theaters or concert halls all their lives and get to the point where they they stop for one reason. Mm-hmm. They, have, they have great pensions. Yeah, that's what's you know? important. Work all that time. You've got to be able to yes. have some rest in there too, and be able to afford right. that rest. Right, and it's been it's been good on my on my end as well. well great. Well, yeah. listen, I want to say thank you very much for coming all the way out here because it's so much better in person to have you sit here and and not have no, to have done this over the phone. And just so if people are wondering, um, do you have hot, hot, hot? Cute up there, Kevin. We're in this booth that is so hot today. It finally got hot outside and we're dying. But it's a great song, I think, to end yes, on. Absolutely. And Joe, thank you very much. We're of gonna course. include in our show notes some other information on where people can okay. see you and no, some other cool. things you have coming up. You guys are wonderful. So thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you so much, George.
Joining me now is Kevin Eitzman, our digital director. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Darcy. So Joe D'Elia, as we talked about on the podcast, is a member of the Associated Musicians of Greater New York, American Federation of Musicians, Local 802. And that's the largest local union of professional musicians in the world. Their offices are located in Manhattan, and we have a link in our show notes for anyone interested in more information about that union. Absolutely, as well as uh, some uh, links to download some of Joe's uh, songs or order his records. Uh, he's really been been great to us. We want to give him some support. Yeah, he was a lot of fun. Yeah. Interesting guy, for sure. So I've been noticing um, our Union Strong hats, which we're giving away to uh, people who subscribe to the podcast. I've, I've seen some pictures on social media. Yep, we got them out to people, uh, the subscribers, last week, and we already started to get some pictures in, and we had uh, a interesting uh, proposition on Twitter. Uh, someone from London, from the UK, is uh, asking for a hat. So Trevor, if you're listening, yeah, we're going to send you the hat out we just uh want you to wear it at a labor rally send us a picture back it's going to be great cross the cross the pond solidarity that would be awesome something to look forward to well, all right well i know we have a limited supply left right so if people want them how do they get those hats so go to unionstrongny.com and fill out the form subscribe to the podcast and we are shipping out we have just a few left uh so definitely get on there as soon as you can Stay up uh, on the conversation with us uh, by going to, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, nysaflcio.org, and, you know, follow us and join in the conversation. Sounds good. Thank you, Kevin. So until next time, stay union, stay strong. 